Well, uh, we're continuing our July series called Turn the Page. And we at Calvary Church are at a turn the page moment, as you know. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving uh, Calvary Church, being part of the story for these last 19 years. At the end of August, that's about five weeks from now, uh, will come my, uh, the closing day of, uh, like it's the closing line of the page that I've had the joy of uh, being part of here at Calvary Church. And we're in the process of seeking the next lead pastor whose name the Lord already knows, who God will use to turn the next page of the Calvary Church story. And we can do this with confidence because the Lord is a great author, and all through history, as he has been writing the story of salvation and the story of the church, he has written one page after another by raising up leaders one after another to continue his work. Two weeks ago, we saw how God turned the page from the leadership of Moses to the leadership of Joshua. And then last week, our district superintendent, Phil Schneider, he described how God turned the page from Elijah the prophet to Elisha the prophet, and he did it by giving the people this great promise that God would do a new and greater thing in the future than anything they had known in the past. And you know, that's the way God is. God's story always advances forward. God's story is always progressing to that which is new and that which is greater and that which is higher and that which is deeper. That's the way God is. Now this morning, we're going to learn from what I believe to be the most profound turn-the-page incident that's recorded in the entire scripture, and that is how God turned the page from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, the Apostle John, not to be confused with John the Baptist, whom we're going to talk about in a moment, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples and one of his biographers, wrote about this transfer of leadership in John chapter 3. Before we get to that, let me give you just a little bit of the background. Uh, God revealed to the prophets of Israel down through the centuries, written in the scriptures, that he would raise up one final prophet just before the Messiah Savior would come on the scene to announce, uh, and this prophet would announce his coming. And so there was a man named John, not the same John who wrote this book of John, but a John who had a tagline, attached to his name, because as he went around uh, preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, John baptized people as they came to repentance. So he, the tagline of his name was, he became John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. He went around all of Israel, announcing that the promised Savior, he was about to appear, and then he called people to repent of their sins and, to sh and, and as a way of showing the sincerity of their repentance, he called them to be baptized and immersed in water, a picture of the cleansing away of the sins of their hearts. So at first, there were scores of people that started to come to John for baptism. And then there were hundreds. And then there were thousands of people coming from all over Israel to the Jordan River persuaded by John's powerful preaching to be baptized. 
Now, if you can picture what those services must have been like, those baptism services at the Jordan River, hundreds of people coming, how long those services must have been? Because they were all standing in line to be baptized by John. So they, they would stand there for three, four, five hours. And, but God, God's presence was powerful in those meetings. And it had been four centuries since there had been a prophet in Israel. And now, through John, this mighty spiritual movement had just begun to take place in preparation for the Messiah to come. So we don't know how many thousands John baptized, but he baptized a good many people. And then one day, in the middle of all this, Jesus came to John to be baptized. Now, at first... John resisted the whole idea. John said to Jesus, you're the son of God. You don't need to be baptized. Rather, I need to be baptized by you because the people I baptize, they all come here repenting of their sins. And you're the son of God and you are sinless. You have no sins to repent of. So so I don't want to baptize you. But Jesus, he flat out insisted, John, you have to baptize me. And it took a minute for John to understand why. But finally, all those those spotless lamb sacrifices that had taken place down through the centuries when the, the lamb was brought and slain and the blood was shed for the forgiveness of the sins of the people of Israel, John finally connected all those dots. And he said that the lamb of God is standing here today. In fact, John says it this way. Behold the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the whole world. And what John was saying, what John saw there was this, that Jesus had to be baptized because it was a picture of how one day he was going to die and take upon himself all of the sins of the entire world. And so Jesus began the ministry that day that John had been announcing for the last few years. And as he did that, Jesus' influence and his fame began to grow. So in John chapter 3, verse 22, we read these words. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem, and they went into the Judean countryside, probably somewhere around the Jordan River. And then Jesus spent some time with his disciples there, and then it says, baptizing people. Now, the scripture also says that Jesus himself didn't do the baptizing. He had his disciples do the baptizing of people who were coming to faith on his behalf. At the same time, verse 23 says, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anan. Now, Anan was in the far north towards Samaria, near Salem, because there was plenty of water there. And people kept coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now, John... The biography notes here, this was before John was thrown into prison. He's just trying to give us a little historical setting right here. So what he's saying is that there was an overlap in the ministries of John the Baptist and of Jesus for a period of time until John got thrown into prison. Then John's ministry came to an end. Verse 25 is an interesting passage. And you know, the Holy Spirit led John the biographer to give us this extra information. It's not really necessary. It's not really pertinent in a certain sense. But John, the biographer, felt that it was important for us to to learn about a little bit of drama 
a little bit of drama that took place here during this transition of power. This is what he says in verse 25. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. Now, commentators, in wrestling with what exactly is being said here, it sounds like something like this. It looks like this unnamed Jewish person had probably heard Jesus' teaching against the common idea that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were always promoting that you could just be purified by going through ceremonial cleansings. And the religious leaders of the day, they weren't really emphasizing the, the repentance part and the change of heart part. And so this certain Jew had probably heard Jesus teaching that it's, it's more than just a ceremony that God's looking for. What God's looking for is a repentant heart that can then be changed and transformed. And the sign of that repentance and a picture of what that repentance does is getting baptized. It's a picture of how God washes away all of our sins. And so it seems that probably this certain Jew that John's disciples are pointing out had probably gone to Jesus repenting and to get baptized. Because in verse number 26, they go right into this question to John. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, and they're referring to Jesus as the man. They didn't name him. The man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Now, this was a turn-the-page moment. This was a transition time. Up to this time, all of the people of Israel had been coming to John by the thousands. But now, the tide was turning. And there were more people starting to go to Jesus for repentance and baptism than were coming to John. And John was losing his influence. John was receding into the background. His ministry was starting to fade away. And his followers were having a really hard time accepting that. And so this is what John says to his followers in reply. In verse 27, he says, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. In other words, he's saying that a person can do nothing. A person receives leadership. A, a person receives position. A person receives calling in the kingdom of God only by the giving of God, by the gift of God. John knew his role. He knew his place under the direction and God's specific plan for his life. And right now, it was God's timing for a transition to occur. So John goes on to say in verse 28, you yourselves know how I plainly told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. Then John gives him this great illustration. In verse 29, he says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend, today we would call that bridegroom's friend the best man, is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. In other words, uh, no, let me finish it. And then John says, therefore, I am filled with joy at Jesus' success. So John sees himself 
as the best man in the plan of God. And Jesus is the center of focus, just like the groom and the bride are the focus at the wedding, not the best man. John saw his place. John knew his role, and that's the role that God had given him. And then in verse number 30, John clearly states this principle by which he lived and, and carried out his ministry. And this is one of the great statements of Scripture. This was the key to John's greatness. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Now, there are three lessons in, that I believe are here in our turn-the-page moment that we can apply this morning to our, own, to our own lives. Number one, John is helping his disciples make way for the new page in God's unfolding plan. Just as they had committed to his ministry and leadership, that now they must open their hearts to the person they had referred to as that man. <laughs> okay. So instead of referring to Jesus as Jesus, John's disciples, they called him that man. They hadn't accepted him yet. They hadn't received him yet. Uh, Jesus, John is asking them to open up their hearts to the new thing that God is about to do in Israel. Now, it would be hard for them because they had known John for several years now, his ways of doing things. They had learned and grown under John. And now there was this new person on the scene, a stranger. They hadn't met him, gotten to know him yet. Jesus looked different than John. He dressed different than John, for sure. I don't think anybody else dressed like John. John wore camel skins, and, and, uh, and nobody ate like John. He ate locust and wild honey, etc. Jesus was different than that. Now, I remember when I was uh, age 14, 15 years old, uh, we had a pastor come to our church in rural northwestern Pennsylvania. Moss Grove Assembly of God was the name of the church I grew up in. And this pastor's name was Jim Leak. He came to our church. He was in his early 20s. And one of the first things I noticed about him was he liked sports. And right away, he gained some points with me right there. And the other thing I saw about Pastor Leak was he was genuine. Now, I was resisting God in my life during the entire time of his ministry at the church. Although I really liked him. But I never let him know that until about 30 years later when I saw him at a minister's meeting at a general council of the Assemblies of God and I went up to Pastor Leek after these 30 years when I myself had been a pastor for many years at that time and I went up to him and told him how much of an impact he had had on my life when I was 13, 14 years old. I finally told him that. But you know, he would, uh, he would come out and play ball with us on the ball field. Uh, he took notice. Uh, I had met Jill way back there in junior high school, and I wanted to take Jill to this Valentine's dinner that was being held by the church. I didn't have a driver's license yet. Uh, so Pastor Lee came and picked me up at the house and drove me down to Jill's house about 11 miles away. And he escorted Jill and I on our first date. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he was a great guy. But then after a couple years, 
he announced that God was leading him to a new, a, a new calling, a, a new place of ministry down near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I felt really bad, and everybody else felt really bad, too. And we had to work through that. And then along came the next pastor. His name was Bill Bradney. And Bill Bradney was different. He was about a foot taller than Pastor Luke. Uh, but he, he was just different. But I will say this. It was under his ministry that my heart finally began to spiritually thaw toward the Lord. And it was under his ministry, during his ministry, when I was 16 years old, that I renewed my commitment to Jesus in the, in the living room of his house with a missionary. I've told you that story before. Uh, but it was in his house, under his leadership and ministry, that that night I prayed, and I felt the Holy Spirit place the desire in me to become a pastor. And then Pastor Bradney, over those next months and years, he was the guy there who was encouraging me to take this this step into a new page of my life. Uh, and so here's what, I, here's what I've discovered, and here's what I think is really important. What I discovered when the Lord turned the page of leadership in the church I grew up in was he also used that to turn a spiritual page in my life personally. And I believe that's exactly what God's plan is here. This is not just about turning a page in the leadership of Calvary Church. But it is also equally about turning a new page in each of your lives spiritually to go into new places that God has for you, new dimensions of growth, new places of discovery, a new page to be turned for the church at large and for you individually as well. That's what this is all about. It's all integrated together in the way God works. And I believe this is what John meant when he said to his followers, he said, I am filled with joy at the success Jesus is having. A new page is about to be turned. This is a time of anticipation of the new thing that God is going to do. I think there's a second lesson here. Uh, John is calling his followers to an attitude of humility. You know, the opposite of humility is self-promotion. Self-promotion always has a spirit of competition attached to it. And so when, Jesus, when John's disciples came to him, they were initially, they were really upset at the success Jesus was having. Imagine that. They were, though. They were jealous. And a, and a competitive spirit was blinding them to what God was doing in this turning the page moment. To a new chapter. And all of us are susceptible to falling into this self-promotion attitude. We all are vulnerable to that. And it is very subtle, especially when it involves spiritual things. Just think of it. Right in the middle of all the, the greatest spiritual moment in the history of Israel, John the Baptist and Jesus on the scene and God doing such wonderful things. Right in the middle of all that, these leaders of John the Baptist who were right along with him and seeing God do wonderful things. This self-promotion attitude crept into the picture. And we're all, like I said, we're all vulnerable to this kind of thing. We're, we all still are made of flesh, right? We can cave into this kind of stuff. Think of John's disciples. They had come to repentance under John's ministry. 
Then they had served with him and seen God do remarkable things as thousands of people came to repentance. And now fewer and fewer people were coming to John's services, and more and more people were attending Jesus' services. And so their position, their prominence, their place in the kingdom they felt was being threatened, was being taken away. And they felt in return that they needed to begin to grasp hold of that, to hold on to their spiritual position. But John set them the example. John had said, it is God who calls us each to our role of leadership. It's God who gives position. It's not for us, us to push, or I don't get to use this word often, finagle. <laughs> we don't get to finagle. That's the way I gesture when I say finagle, okay? We don't get to politic around. We don't get to pull the strings of power and position or trying to hold on to position to promote ourselves. The Apostle John, I believe, is including this in his book because this doesn't just happen out there in the world. It can happen among God's people even at the most spiritual moments of a person's life. You know, Jesus told what I believe is the most humorous of all the parables that he ever told in the New Testament. Now, you can read it in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. Uh, I don't have time to read it right now, but I'm going to summarize it. Uh, Jesus was at a dinner, and he was just watching people as they came into the dinner and took their seats. In fact, it says specifically, he was watching how they were trying to maneuver to get the most prominent seats at this banquet, this dinner. Uh, and then at some appropriate point during the dinner, he stood up and he turned that into a parable. He gets everyone atten everyone's attention. Then he says this, I'm summarizing. When you are invited to a banquet, don't seek a seat of honor at the main table. Don't seek your position. Because what if somebody has already been, been assigned that seat by the host and you take it and then the host comes and says, oh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to move. This is reserved for someone else. And then here you are in front of all the guests, embarrassed, getting up and having to go take one of those common ordinary seats. And then Jesus says, here's a better way. What if, uh, he says, uh, if you at first go into the banquet and just take a common seat, rather than pushing for your own position, then maybe the host will come to you and say, oh no, I have a seat for you up here at the head table. Now, then Jesus, after he told the parable, he added, I believe the primary principle upon which the kingdom of God functions and certainly the primary principle upon which unity in the kingdom of God prevails. And that is this, and these are among the most powerful words in the scripture. He says, for those who exalt themselves, those who push and pull the strings and push for position and push for power, they're gonna be humbled. They're gonna be humiliated. They're gonna be brought down. But those who humble themselves they're going to be exalted. God, will, God, in his time and in his way, according to his plan, he will lead them to the position he has for them in his kingdom. So, humility 
I believe, will make room, help us make room in our hearts for this turn-the-page moment and the person that God has, whose name he already knows, who he's bringing to Calvary Church to lead the church. And then the third point is this. John reminds his followers of the mission. Uh, he reminds them that it's important to keep their eyes set on the big picture of the whole story of Jesus and not to get stuck on one page in that story. Right after John says in verse 30, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less, John then points them to the big picture in the next four or five verses. This is what he says. He, referring to Jesus, has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth. And we speak of earthly things. We're humble. We're, we're human. Jesus is divine as well as human. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. And then he says, he testifies about what he has seen and heard. What has Jesus seen and heard? Well, Jesus spent all of eternity hearing and seeing the things of the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. He's part of the Trinity. There's no one who has seen and heard things like Jesus did. And John realized that. So John was humbled. And we need to listen to him. And then he goes on to verse 33. Anyone who accepts his testimony, what Jesus has seen and heard, can, can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. He speaks God's word. For God gives him the spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Ten times the pronoun he, referring to Jesus, is just packed into this statement that John the Baptist gives his, his followers. And, and never once does John say me. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about he... He, 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 Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it's not about me. And so, during these turn-the-page times, it's vital to keep our eyes on the long arc of God's mission and purpose for the church and for Calvary Church. And to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on the various personalities that God uses during the pages of his story. Because he's writing one book. He's writing one story here that, that the Holy Spirit ties all together to reflect the glory, not of any individual personality, but the glory of the one and the only Son of God who is greater than us all, who has come from heaven, who has seen what God has seen because he is God, and he's come to share that with us. So, as we close this morning, the Lord is interested in turning the pages in the big story. He is writing through this church, but the story is also writing in your individual life. And there may be some people here, there might be a person here who would say this morning, well, when you talk about writing a story in my own personal life, what possible story could Jesus write in my life? Uh, so far, the chapters in my life, the pages in my life are not very good. Uh, maybe I, I've done things that are wrong. 
I'm, 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 not a, I'm ashamed of those things. There have been wounds in my life. The chapters of my life so far, it's not a very good story. But the promise of Christ is for every human being. Long before you were conceived, he already conceived in his mind your story. And I want to tell you something. Your story is a bestseller, okay? Your story, the story Jesus has for your life, it can't be improved upon. And you may have some chapters in your story because of this fallen, messed up world we lived in, our, in our own broken human nature, that have just messed up those chapters in your life up to this point. Here's what Jesus wants to do. You can bring all the broken pieces of those pages to him. He'll take it all. He'll cleanse you. And, and what he promises is to begin to write the first page of the brand new story, the second chance, the brand new story, the brand new beginning that Jesus Christ came to bring every human being so that his story can still be written in your life. And there's the greatest hope in the world. Your story is not over. Your story can just be beginning if you put your trust in Christ. And, you know, it's self-will, isn't it? That is the problem for us all. That's what gets us into our problems. When we, we're trying to write our own story instead of putting the pen in God's hands and surrendering to him. And so Jesus came into the world to save us from the foolishness and destruction of our own ways of doing things, of running our own life. We can surrender to him, come to Christ in faith, repenting like John and Jesus both kept emphasizing is the first step into the kingdom of God, to come repenting of our sins, saying, Lord, I've blown it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And when we do that, Christ comes into your life, literally, really, not just metaphorically, okay? The presence of God enters into the depths of your being, and from there, God begins to make himself a reality to you personally. Uh, if you haven't made that decision in your life, this would be a great time to do it. And put that pen in God's hand and let him start writing that new story. And the pages of that story don't end at this life. God's going to keep writing your story for all of eternity. New pages, new discoveries, new stuff out in front of you. And the same for us as a church collectively. God has a new story to write. And... Uh, and so we put our trust in him as a church family, grateful for the pages that he's written in the past, but looking forward to the pages that he's got for us in the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you give us direction, you give us instruction in your word, Lord. And Father, uh, we submit our souls, our hearts, our minds to Christ. He is the head of the church, not us. He is the head of all creation, not us. And the glory belongs to Jesus. The glory belongs to Christ, 100%. And so, Father, we offer to you this morning as a congregation, we offer up to you that praise and that glory that belongs to you. And along with that, the high trust and confidence that as you lead this church through the transition, turning the page moment, that you do indeed know the name of that next leader that you're going to bring to guide and direct into the new things that you're doing. So, Father, we come to you this morning submitting like John the Baptist did all of our hearts, all of our interests, our present and our future to you. And we give you praise, Lord, for hearing our prayer. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Amen.